Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include online universities, the rebirth of New York City, why people drink alcohol, innovation in the spirits market, craft bourbons, and a reality TV star promoted tequila. Our first speaker is Zvi Galil, who is the former Dean of Computing at Georgia Tech. Zvi and Georgia Tech have introduced an online master's degree in computer science that is a total hit. 12,000 students will matriculate this fall in a program that is by design completely online and where students can take classes anywhere. Zvi is convinced that this approach will be the future of education and today we will learn why. Our second speaker is Tom Dija, who is the author of New York, New York, New York, Four Decades of Success, Excess, and Transformation. The book details the term of five New York City mayors, Koch, Dinkins, Giuliani, Bloomberg, and de Blasio, and what these mayors did right and wrong during their respective terms. Tom's book describes everything about New York, its people, business, culture, and the arts. I hope to learn from Tom how COVID will change the direction of this great city. What happens next then segues into something completely different. My co-host Todd Benson joins me again with a panel of experts on the alcoholic beverage industry. Todd has been my close friend since 1987 when we joined Salmon Brothers together as financial analysts. Today, Todd is on the board of several incredibly interesting new tech startups. Our first beverage panelist is Carol Reber, who is the Chief Marketing and Direct-to-Consumer Officer at Duckhorn Winery. Carol will discuss why we drink and how our beverage consumption changed during COVID, why Americans initially started out COVID going down market with brand selection and then quickly reverse course. I look forward to hearing from Carol about what she thinks will happen next in the wine and spirits markets. Our second speaker is Carlton Fowler, who is the managing partner at Goat Rodeo Capital Management and the former head of spirit innovation at Gallo Wines. Carlton will explain the future trends in spirits Carlton told me that over the last few decades, drinkers want something sweet, something carbonated, and a beverage that will get them drunk. This explains our former interest in wine coolers and the trend towards spiked seltzers. Carlton predicts that the next hot, be- the next hot alcoholic beverage will likely be sweet, carbonated, and will get you drunk. Our third speaker is David Epstein, who is the co-founder of Tom's Town Distilling Company. His Kansas City-based enterprise makes craft bourbons, gin, and vodka. Many of our listeners love these craft-produced alcoholic beverages, and like me, they want to hear about this growing market of sophisticated cocktails. Our final speaker is Mike Novi. You met Mike last spring on What Happens Next when he was the president of Tequila Casa Dragones. Mike has since changed jobs and is now the president and COO of 818 Spirits, which is the reality TV star Kendall Jenner's new brand. I want to learn from Mike about how does a reality star drive interest in a brand and how does that relate to a tequila product in particular. All right, let's begin today's program with Svea Glau, who will introduce us to the very innovative online master's program offered at Georgia Tech. Go ahead, Svea. Thank you, Larry. In March 2020, Almost all universities moved almost all their courses online. Six years earlier, Georgia Tech introduced its online Master of Science in Computer Science program. Uh, 
Some say we were prescient. In my six-minute lecture, I will tell you about the program's unique features, what we have learned so far, and share with you some thoughts about the future. The program has five unique features. One, it is the first MOOC-based online program. This means it is based on MOOC technology. MOOCs are massive open online courses. Two, it is highly affordable. The total cost of the program was initially 6,600, now $7,000. In comparison, the cost of our on-campus program is 40,000 for out-of-state students and $25,000 for in-state students, the cost in private universities is $70,000 or more. This drew everybody's attention. Our motto is accessibility through affordability and technology. Three, we accept every candidate with a BS that meets certain requirements, i.e. everyone that we believe can complete it successfully. So far, we accepted 74% of the applicants. This compares to 10% and less in some well-known universities. The program is a fundamental, even revolutionary shift from the prevailing paradigm of higher education in which brand is bolstered by exclusion and high tuition fees. Four, the students make extensive use of social media where they created 74 communities. The academic interaction on social media is much more intense than that of the on-campus students. Five, the size. In January 2014, we started with 380 students, and this spring we had over 11,000. It will exceed 12,000 in the fall. The sky is the limit, and we cannot see the sky. So far, we have had over 40,000 applications. The program has graduated more than 5,000, it will graduate about 2000 in 2021. Harvard's study from 2017 predicted uh, that we will increase the annual number of graduates with master's degree in computer science in the US by at least 7%. The increase is now almost 10%. What we have learned. One, a top tier university can create a high quality online program that can scale. Two, the demographic of the online students and the on-campus students is quite different, and the online program has not cannibalized the on-campus program. Since the start of the program, the number of applications to the on-campus program tripled. Three, the program caters to a population of potential students that has been underserved by higher education institutions. There is large and growing demand for such programs. Over 30 universities followed in our footsteps and created over 40 programs. More are needed. Four, you can't learn what you don't try. Never say never. Five, the online students are much more involved with the classes than the on-campus students. Six, students love our program. The Harvard study discovered that most would not pursue the degree if such a program did not exist. We hear it from them directly as well. I've given dozens of lectures in 16, in 16 countries and met students and alumni everywhere, in my lectures, on the street, on the plane. They thank us for creating the program. 
We have almost 400 TAs, 40% are alumni of the program. 25% are students in the program. They do, not, they do it for little pay, even though they have full-time jobs and many have families. It is the way to give back. We could not scale the program without their help. This is heartwarming. The future. During the pandemic, many teachers and students were exposed to online for the first time. After the pandemic, online teaching will be much more pervasive than it was before the pandemic. There will be more online degrees like ours, more online courses, and more hybrid courses. Georgia Tech now has three MOOC-based, highly affordable online master degrees. University of Illinois, Illinois, the first that followed us, has now three as well. A book, The Distributed Classroom by David Joyner, the current executive director of our program, and Charles Isbell, the current dean, will, will, will come up, out in September. It captures the lessons we learned and shows several new ways that classroom teaching can be combined with online learning in the future. At Georgia Tech, we started online teaching in our on-campus undergraduate program. In 2017, we introduced an online section of the first computer science course, Introduction to Computing with Python. It has been a big success. About half of the students took the online version. They performed slightly better and were more satisfied than those who took it the, the normal class. In 2019, we added two more courses. I envision a future where undergraduates will have a choice of a hybrid program. Students will be able to take introductory courses online before arriving at the university. We'll be able to take on, online courses while serving as intern and, or working. If universities adopt our model of moderate pricing, students will graduate with no debt. Thank you. Uh, that's incredible, Svi. Um, let me start out with a question about the economics of the program. Uh, you mentioned that it only costs $7,000 for a student to attend um, your online school to get a master's degree in, in computer science. And then you compared it to $40,000 for out-of-state students. And $40,000 actually doesn't include, I don't imagine, um, books and housing. And room and board. Um, nor does it include the opportunity costs from work that they may or may want to do on the side to earn some money as well. Um, can you take me through the economics of, of the $7,000? Um, and does the university break even on that? Um, what, how much does it cost for the professor and for the TAs, et cetera? What, how, how do you break down that number? It was pleasure. Uh, so, what is the income of the program, the tuition? So tuition is small, but when you multiply small number by large number, it's, it may be large. What are the expenses of the program? Creating the course initially costs $300,000 because it's a MOOC, a good MOOC, is like a, a small movie. It, so now it is about $100,000, still very expensive. The teachers, the faculty, this is not the normal instruction uh, obligation, and uh, they get extra. If you need that, uh, I will go into it, but I think that's of less interest. I'm a strong believer in incentives. 
so they get ed comp, additional income. And the TAs, of course, course. Okay. Um, so how did we start it? We were lucky. AT&T gave us $2 million even before we started, and, and after the year of the program, another $10 million. As a result, we were always in the black. That, that was hugely important because Georgia Tech has all, it doesn't have the $60 billion that Harvard has as an endowment. It has only less than two. Uh, and the, as a result of the two, $4 million, we were always in the black. What is the net? Uh, the net, uh, what, we, what did we do with the net? Uh, we had, for the first six years, we, di we divided it with Udacity. That's the platform that's, uh, on which the program uh, ran. Now it's, it all goes to Georgia Tech. Inside Georgia Tech, we had a division uh, by every, all the partners that brought it about. In the first five years, we had net income of $13 million. This year alone, we will have $13 million. Next year, $15 to $18 million. So, uh, so this is it. Uh, we could do other things. It can cost us more. Uh, well, I think what's amazing, what you're telling me, Zvi, is you've got a business that's making $10 million bucks and growing at 20%. I mean... That's a business that's probably worth three to five hundred million dollars if you sold it, um, at least. I mean, that's a mammoth business. Why don't we uh, see? It's not clear where the sky. It's not clear, <laughs> and we have been growing it slowly and judiciously, and always with uh, looking if we can handle it. So far, we could, and we quite uh, often sure. uh, we think that we can in in the fall when it will be twelve thousand or even twelve thousand five hundred. Uh, 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 students. So even if we paid a little bit more for the TAs and people ask, how do you update the course? They change. So faculty, yeah. initially in the model, we included one third of preparing a course to, to modify each summer. No, no, no. The, the faculty tweak it for no cost. Two of the courses we, we, we had to do from scratch. So, and you ask a uh, $6,600, now it's $7,000. It's the lowest among all those that followed us because we really didn't care about the price. The other two in Georgia Tech are $10,000. Other universities are mostly higher. Illinois, they are in business school, they take $22,000, but it's, less, it's still less than the 70000 on campus program. Can it be that low on its own? The answer is no. Because the one big component of university budget is faculty salaries. Here they don't get the salaries, they get already the salaries. So I believe that probably in order to sustain it as an online university, you probably will need to have it at 15 or 20,000. But this is still much, much lower than everything. Well, I'm actually surprised to hear that. I would have thought that if you double the number of students, you could actually, the price could come way down. Um, uh, uh, yeah, uh, this needs to, we didn't compute it. So I don't know exactly the sensitivity to all the parameters, but you're right. Uh, in, fact, in fact, Sebastian Chan came to me and I said in 2012, which was the year of the MOOC, let's do a program of $1,000. And I told him, it won't do, 4000 will do. And actually, with 4,000, we would have broken. We have, I'm very, have very good intuition for numbers, especially with the dollar sign. 
Uh, but our leadership wanted to play it safe, justifiably, and we did it at $6,600. Uh, so, let me uh, ask a question on a completely different uh, topic. Um, who are these kids? Where are they from? What do they look like? Um, are they American? Are they foreign? Who are these people? I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you. This is the demographics. And the demographics of the on-campus and online is very different. First of all, age-wise. Uh, the average age is 32, while the on campus is 22, immediately after BA. Uh, and uh, we actually had somebody graduate and he was 68. Uh, but that's not typical. But the average age is 32. Second, on campus, majority is international. Uh, online, majority domestic. There is, a, there is a big explanation for this one main reason. International students want to pay the price, higher price, to, to study on campus because they have a, a foot in the door. They get a visa. With online, they don't get a visa. That's really interesting. What does, um, you mentioned that the students make extensive use of social media. Um, what does that mean? What, what are they doing? How are they interacting with so each they other? They have 74 groups. Some by geography, some by gender, some by ethnicity, some by course. So if, if, if there is a group for the course, they exchange information on the course. Okay? They help one another. Some of them even uh, uh, talk to potential uh, applicants. Uh, they, they do part of the, our work. Uh, I, I said so about TAs, but also about publicity and also uh, we had 1,250 stories in the media in, in the first uh, seven years, uh, and sometimes uh, in the, on the web, uh, people in the comments berate us, oh, online is, can, can be terrible, and we don't answer it. Our students answer it, and they say it's as hard <laughs> as the, the regular program. You know, they, they don't accept it easily because they know it's a uh, Georgia Tech brand is very hard work, and we make them work hard also online. I want to go back to your comment about how the average age is, or the median age is like 32 years old. Um, that is so different uh, than a, I imagine, the 23-year-olds that you have uh, online. Um, so it, they're, they're in a different part of their career. Um, what, do they want a different sort of education at that age? Is it more a supplement? Are they changing careers? Uh, it's, it's everything. Uh, actually, uh, it's uh, many just want to learn, you know. Some uh, want to switch jobs, you know. Uh, some engineers or scientists, they want to move to computer science. Uh, some, uh, we have a small number of PhDs, and they, want, they need computer science for their research, machine learning, data science. So uh, there are all these reasons. But uh, and some of them, yeah, you know, some of them for computer science is a new career. Some of them want to get promoted. And we have this table. I don't have it in front of me, uh, with a percentage uh, that uh, that uh, this happened because we we served them in 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 February. You know, you mentioned hey, before another thing that's a go ahead, Todd. 
I guess I say, Larry, it's in. It's a, it's a Todd Benson. So, yeah, I'm curious, basically, just kind of how this one kind of shakes out for basically, you know, kind of the professors or kind of the talent in the equation. And I think about sort of you know, kind of analogous industries, whether it's kind of textbooks and college textbooks, and you have a few sort of superstar professors who make, you know, kind of just multiples of sort of kind of everybody else. And what this means about sort of kind of the future of the teaching profession and what it mean, what it might mean about the future sort of of tenure and sort of kind of the superstar professor, if a professor now can teach thousands of students, whoever has the best calculus program or the best computer science program. I'm sort of curious about your observations there. So let me start by saying that I don't have prophets in my family, but uh, there were some doomsday uh, articles. Uh, in, uh, one of them in the Wall Street Journal by but then Daniel Pikes and one by Scott Galloway. Scott Galloway says 12, uh, 25% of the university will not exist in five to 10 years. Uh, then Daniel Pipes says that 50 will survive, the rest will be satellites to give them campus for the social life. I, universities have been very, very sustainable, you know, since, since 1180 Bologna. So, there will be more like online. You still need the infrastructure. You cannot, you know, my friend, we had online also when I was at Columbia, and my friend had this idea that, that you know, the one Nobel laureate will teach everybody, <laughs> and the other professor will not have a job. You still need the infrastructure, and you, you still need the support. They might it might affect some. It might, it might affect the incredible, insane rise in tuition. It already slows down. Some of the university will have to cut tuition and some will have to close. But I don't think it will devastate the industry. Well, my question is really more about what it means for the talent. You know, kind of for, will, we end, will, we, will we lead to sort of, kind of the rise of the superstar professor? We already live in this era. <laughs> but maybe in teaching, because in teaching uh, also, there are, in every department, there are the two, three fantastic teachers, etc. So, yeah, he will attract more students. Uh, uh, they described in some university, I think in Yale, uh, one professor is teaching a million students and everybody takes a course online, but, but I don't think they give credit. I want to ask a question similar to Todd's um, about interaction with specific teachers. Um, I, um, I took one of, I went to the University of Pennsylvania and I had a superstar history teacher and I loved him. And then I decided to take uh, a, his, a second course taught by the same professor. And I noticed uh, diminishing marginal returns associated with taking the same professor twice, even though it was a completely different topic you know, the core beliefs that he had were consistent across both courses, and I, I got diminishing marginal returns. And I'm just wondering whether or not in your class, because of the uh, online nature of it, why it should be taught by just a single professor. Why not use a team so that, you know, you could get the best out of each one uh, and not have the diminishing marginal returns associated with a specific professor? So most of the professors teach only one class. So there are some exceptions, but most of them teach only one class. Uh, we play as we go. We don't know all the answers, so, so we don't know yet. 
And in terms of uh, interaction with students, uh, it's, it's less than on campus. But when you have the 300 students uh, on campus, the interaction with the professor is also minimal. You mentioned in your talk that online students are much more involved with the classes than the on-campus students. What does that mean? How, does that, how do you evaluate that, and why is that true? So first of all, they can uh, online they can ask many more questions. Potentially, uh, also on campus they can do it, but they usually don't. So they can ask many more questions, and they one answers the other. The TAs intervene, and sometimes the professor intervenes. On campus, say after five questions, the professor says, "Hey, we have to finish the material. We don't have time." Uh, also. <laughs> Uh, some of the students uh, are professional in computers, computers, and they know some of it, and sometimes they say, hey, the professor doesn't know what he's talking about. In real life, it happens A, B, C. And we also have anecdotes. We have a course in uh, educational technologies. We have teachers taking the course. We have uh, medical informatics. Physicians take the course. And they, they give input. Also, the, these computer specialists give input. So they, actually, the class is much richer. And is there like a positive feedback loop? So let's imagine you've got, let's say, 200 questions on one of the points that the guy asked, uh, um, one of the things the teacher discussed. So does the teacher go, oh, my goodness, uh, there's so much, so much confusion about what I said in that paragraph or that um, in that section, maybe I should redo it. So is there a constant positive feedback loop? Um, for, a little bit. It hasn't been measured. But, but, but professors tweak the classes every, every, every time they give it. So, and, and they, some of it is based on the loop. Some, some, of them, some of it is based on the fact that the, the field is changing. Uh, but it doesn't change overnight, so it <laughs> it changes slower than people think. You know, is there something? I was going to say this is like another sort of kind of question I'm thinking about it is, does this, do you, do you think that, you know, kind of in terms of just, you know, I guess whatever the college participation rate or the college graduate rate is like, you know, kind of one in three, or it's like 34, 5% in the United States, right? If I'm correct, my memory's correct. I'm curious, basically, if you think about, you know, kind of the shift online, if we're going to really kind of grow the participation rate, so to speak, and more and more, this will make, you know, kind of college more affordable, you know, kind of greater kind of for people and where it will it'll be you know, kind of terrific as it relates to kind of, you know, kind of global competitiveness and that being a real sort of thing? Or do you think it's, you know, and how much of it then is this kind of, kind of cannibalize what is a, you know, very legacy, you know, almost you'd say basically higher education, a lot of people to analogize it to, um, uh, you know, to, to, to Detroit and you know, kind of the, the U.S. auto industry in terms of just, you know. So, you so know, the cannibalization a, a First of all, the, uh, about the college, that was the last part of my talk about the college that we haven't done. We are moving in this direction. Uh, so first, it will, college as a result will be much more accessible. Also, even if students take part, you know, they, they will have an option to take all of it online, some of it online, you know, in the beginning in high school or uh, they take a job before college and uh, take the introductory course online in the middle when they, when they take internship or co-op. Nowadays, they have to stop learning, but, now, but with online, they can take one course. 
And, and then when they graduate, they take the advanced courses for the online master's degree. So, so they can, even being on campus three years or so, two and a half years, you, you still finish the rest with online. And, and, and as a result, universities that are smart enough reduce the tuition for the online, and they will not lose because if less students are on campus, they can accept many more students and, and can, can fill all the beds in their zone. So, so they will not be, most of them, the better of them, certainly the ones in the top 200 will not suffer. Lee, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to go on to our next speaker now. Uh, it's Tom Dija. Tom is the author of New York, New York, New York, um, as well as uh, The Third Coast, When Chicago Built the American Dream. Tom is going to discuss uh, urban economics and culture and what's going to happen next in New York City. Tom, go ahead. I'll be close enough to that. Uh, thank you, Larry. It's clear that the pandemic, the activism inspired by the last four or five years, and the enormous turnover in New York City Hall coming this fall, that's going to include not just a new mayor, but 38 new council members out of 51, all these things together are going to force an inevitable fourth evolution of New York. Anyone who tells you exactly what is going to happen in post-COVID New York, I think is selling you snake oil. Nobody knows. I don't know. Uh, but we can and we must plan. So what I'd like to do here is just to lay out the three principal themes that were the foundation of what I wrote in New York, New York, New York, and apply them to what I hope the next evolution will look like. Uh, the first is the idea of exchange. William Holly White was a great urbanist who was the godfather of so many of the positive changes to New York over these 40 years I write about, once said that cities exist to make exchange between people possible. Note that he did not say that the entire city was a marketplace. Uh, yes, the marketplace is a vital aspect of the city, but not all the exchange takes place there, nor does White qualify what exactly is being exchanged. In other words, he's not just talking about money. The biggest mistake we've made in New York over these 40 years is to reduce everything to dollars and cents because people in healthy communities exchange more than just money. They exchange knowledge, they exchange labor, Love, time, wisdom, spirit, sex, style, cachet, access, all of these things exist in alternate economies that the money economy only simulates. Monetizing everything we think and do and say has corroded the foundation of New York over these years. When we talk about communities coming apart, we are talking about communities where people no longer exchange these other things with each other. When we talk about the tragedies of urban renewal, we're talking about how we plowed over fully functioning communities in the name of more money. So the next evolution of New York needs to revalorize and prioritize things beyond just building wealth. At City Hall, it means planning and making decisions based on more than just the virtuous cycle of tax revenue. On streets, it means, among other things, incentivizing other uses for empty storefronts to facilitate all the different kinds of exchange New Yorkers want and need to do. The second idea is networks. Much of the discourse around New York and really all cities over the last decade has become, I think, all too binary, rich versus poor, them versus us. But when I started the book and went back to the fiscal crisis and, and tried to assign everyone all their places, the battle lines didn't just all line up into simple good and bad. People were allies on some issues, there were opponents on others, all of which made very clear to me that you can't approach New York or cities in general as a morality play. Social network theory provided, for me, a much more accurate vision of the city's structure, especially during these years when collective powers such as faith communities, unions, the mob, political machines, all of these 
collective groups lose power at the same time as corporate powers are consolidating. Networks are built on more than just the herd movements of pure self-interest. Essentially, they're maps of the people near and far that we exchange with. And over the course of this book, New Yorkers connected more than they ever had, like the synapses of what I think of as a kind of vast brain. The more connections people made, the more these synapses fired, the higher functioning the city as a whole became. People who were well-networked thrived. Those who didn't um, or weren't well-networked suffered. So going forward, New Yorkers need to do two things in terms of networks. First, we need to look harder at how we use them to deliver social services of all kinds. The pandemic, in particular, just looking at vaccines, have given us a great model for how not to approach service delivery effectively and equitably. We should be using networks to push forward into communities to be proactive in delivering vaccines. In terms of other services, the greatest needs are usually among those who tend to be unconnected, such as the elderly or single immigrant mothers. The city needs to be in better partnership with faith communities, other ground-level organizations, not to just kind of slough off responsibility and privatize, but to be the most sensitive edge of the city, trying to really get to the heart of these long-standing problems. Not everyone can know us in New York, but each of us must be known by someone. Secondly, we have to examine our own networks. If everyone you deal with looks like you, went to the same schools as you, has the same taste or religion, then it is time to open up. Um, and all the discussion about justice and equity and change um, mean nothing if the social structures of the city don't change. And the networks we all personally are in are the basic building blocks of those structures. The third fundamental issue to me for New York ahead is generational change. Movement in and out of the city historically has not been purely a matter of real estate prices or government incentives. It has simply had a lot to do with wanting to get away from where you grew up. The World War II generation went to the suburbs for a lot of reasons, and certainly racism and white flight was primary, but wanting to start fresh and get away was also one of them. The move back to the city, conversely, was led by baby boomers who created the yuppie lifestyle as a generational choice and kind of pushed back to the suburban outlying. So, while buying a home has always been a way to build equity in the U.S., it's now a fundamental problem in New York, where limited space has forced out-of-control prices, and the point is no longer any kind of saving, but really speculation. Real estate costs simply suck too much money out of what could be going to the city's greater economy. Every evolution of New York has had some version of a housing crisis, but over the last 40 years, we've simply doubled and tripled down on the same models of ownership, and the generations coming aren't necessarily interested in them anymore. They want active integration of income, class, and race, not just mandatory affordable units that really do very little to change the deeper structures of the community. If we really are serious about changing education, dealing with crime, creating economic justice, we need to help the next generations with housing options that will make that change more likely to happen organically and systematically. Uh, since this book came out, I've been asked over and over to predict what's exactly going to happen in New York. And again, all I can say is I don't know. Uh, the pandemic has forced us into new situations, but New York's future success and the success of all of its people is going to require us to grab this opportunity to make serious change. Did I make six Thanks. minutes, Larry? <laughs> I wasn't timing you. I was, I was listening too closely. I hope you were a good boy. Um, <laughs> Let me let me start out with the whole um, networking with people who look like you. Uh, I'm yeah. guilty as charged. Okay, I'm totally we all are. guilty. We all are. 
I mean, I think that's basic. Uh, I think we have to all say that. You know, and, you know, so I'm guilty. And um, the people who I'm friends with look just like me. They're interested in, you know, they're interested in books. They're interested in making money. They're interested in business. Mm-hmm. Um, we have similar religion and similar, you know, facial uh, constructs. Um, it's gendered as well. Um, what, why is that a problem? Uh, you know, wasn't Archie Bunker who said let the same be the same and the difference with the difference? What What's so bad about hanging out with your, your own kind? Um, it creates, I, I, I think, it, it. we're looking at the, the problems we get from that. I think it creates a kind of profound insularity. And, you know, strong communities are not based purely on affinity. Um, I, I think they are based on difference, and they are based on admitting difference and talking about it as opposed to trying to avoid any of that kind of thing. Um, you know, I, I think that it's... Can you give me an example you know, of success in that domain? Uh, where you have what you, your dream case of, of a community of a, that looks at working. issues of 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 race and class and, and, and sort of confronts those things as opposed to yeah. kind of running away from them. Um, I, I, you know, listen. I think that it's not a pleasant activity, but I think the act of politics and trying to look at um, to trying to confront issues of these things. I mean, it's basic. I, I, I'm hard-pressed to pull you out of saying, you know, in Oak Park, this worked out well. Um, you know, I mean, there are certain social things that need to be discussed in basic ways as opposed to be running away from them. I mean, I just, I think that that's a basic, depends on what scale you want to talk about. You know, you're talking about your neighborhood, your block club, or are we talking about a city at large? You know, these are ways you scale up these conversations are, are kind of basic to that conversation, I think. You know, when you started your book, it starts in the 1960s, and it's chaos. Um, the Bronx is burning down. Yeah. Um, New York has is is just. I I, I can um, you know Howie White. I don't. Know if, uh, I think it was Howie White um, wrote an article about how great New York was in like the 1940s and 1950s, and um, and now, you know, New York is a disaster. If people are exiting, the Bronx right. is on fire. Um, we're talking about what, the what? 70s when the book starts? Yeah. We're talking about now, yeah. yeah. And, you know, it's just a rejection of um, what happened. Why Why do you think Holly, New York Hollywood fell apart? Liked, but Hollywood, Hollywood liked the city a lot in the 70s. I mean, there was a huge amount of, of a, culturally – you know, not just politically and economically, but there was an enormous cultural and kind of academic pushback during the 70s of, you know, the urban crisis and uh, just this whole sense that urban life was somehow, you know, come to an end, corroded. There was no way that we should be living in cities. It was terrible for people. And Holly White was very much part of a pushback against that, not just from the kind of back to the city movement that he was on a leading edge of, and that was kind of in the 50s and through the 60s, but also in the sense of enjoying, of of believing that the solution for the city was people, that it was to actually put people together in the cities, fill the streets. If you wanted to get rid of crime, invite people into them. It's the dark corners that are the problem. He was very much involved in the beginning of kind of rehabbing Bryant Park, which Moses had turned into, you know, an oasis of sorts in the city, which turned out to be exactly what it shouldn't be. 
um, people want to be around other people. That's one of the things that attracts them. And, and so Holly White would do these studies of, of small urban spaces mm-hmm. like Paley Park or the, the plaza at the Seagram's building and film them from the roof of other buildings, you know, and sort of watch where people met, kind of saw how they acted in public space. And so um, he was very involved in, in creating zoning laws and sort of helping the discussion of how do we reclaim public space and turn it into a, a, an area where we kind of express democracy as opposed to run away from it. You know, how do we all live together and use space together as opposed to just using space as a kind of free for all, you know, and, and there's you a know, difference between that. And I think that was of, very uh, much speaks to the change in New York in that time. You know, one of Holly White's, uh, I thought, most interesting uh, urban experiments was he analyzed Lexington Avenue, I think, in the 60s. And, you know, storefronts would put out signs and obstacles right in front of the store, right. forcing people to got how to walk around um, and then forcing them to either engage with the store or engage with each other. One of the most interesting aspects of COVID is, I'll call it the outbreak into the street. Yeah. Um, restaurants are, can't let people inside. People don't want to go inside to eat. And they've taken over the parking and put in all these new tables. It, it's like Paris all of a sudden it's in great. New York City. It's, yeah. it's really you, fabulous. I mean, tell me well, what you, you think know, of it and can it last? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it will last. I mean, Hollywood, when, when the book starts, I mean, we're talking in the late 70s, there were literally a handful, and I mean literally a handful, of outdoor cafes in New York. Um, it was incredibly hard to get the zoning variants. I mean, it was a whole big deal. And as that began to open up, that was kind of part of the portfolio of ideas that uh, White had for expanding, getting people onto the streets and using them. So he was always in favor of that. And yeah, COVID just created this. Um, the other part of that goes is the, the sense of kind of creating traffic diets. And so a lot of the space that was taken over, some of it, were in street areas that were already being trimmed back, where a lane was already being pulled back. Um, and so it's it's the, the ground was already there for it to happen, but it's added an immense amount to the city. I mean, I have to say this, you know, during the week walking around these sheds um, with lights all over them, full of people. I mean, the city's raring to go for the people coming after me talking about bars and liquor. Holy cow, New Yorkers are ready for that. And I think <laughs> they will be positive because, and will be permanent just because people really are enjoying them. You know, and I think they're also going to be necessary because of the attrition in the bar and restaurant world in New York has been such that getting a table is kind of a job right now and tricky. So we actually need the tops, I think, and the expansions of some of these places that we're able to make it through is going to be necessary, at least in the short term. But there's an enormous amount of public support for them. And I don't really, the argument against is just not all that strong. I want to talk about Brooklyn for a second. Next week, we're going to have Kay Heimowitz talk about her new book on Brooklyn. Um, But I want you to kind of uh, set the stage for it a little bit. Um, Brooklyn is gone. I mean, oh, my God. Uh, When I first moved to New York City in 1987, I had an apartment in Brooklyn Heights. And, you know, the place was run down. Um, And today, I mean, Brooklyn is, is fantastic in every cultural dimension. Every young person wants to live in Brooklyn um, and not in Midtown or Upper East Side. What, right, right. What, what is going on in Brooklyn? What, why did gentrification work so well? Why, um, how did Brooklyn... Well, some would argue that world... it didn't, but I mean, I think one of the things I wanted to do in the book was to show 
that rise of Brooklyn in its real, you know, in its kind of real timeline as it happened through the course of the city, because it didn't just happen overnight. People who are in Brooklyn tend to look, you know, those who move there and say, oh, my God, look what just happened, you know, and it's been happening before, you know, and then the two people who walk in after them are the terrible gentrifiers. And it's been a long process. You know, I, I looked in 1984 for an apartment in Brooklyn, you know, after graduating from college. So people were already starting to to seep over there in in waves and waves and i think the biggest you know and even a lot of the work that the book starts with when we talk about business investment districts and um, things like that were things that came out of um brooklyn out of brooklyn heights cobble hill that whole kind of regentrification of or region the gentrification of south brooklyn which was really something that started in the late 60s kind of jumping off from the Savannah um, Charleston movement. Um, you first see references to gentrification in like the late 60s or so um, in Brownstoning and Park Slope as well. So Brooklyn was always kind of basic um, in a kind of back to the city movement. And over the years, there just seems to be over these 40 years, there are regular waves of movement back over that to now really New York looks at itself in a very different way where when you think of Saturday Night Fever, you know, the whole point is looking over from Bay Ridge and trying to get to Manhattan. And that mentality mm -hmm. just doesn't exist anymore. The city has a much broader understanding of itself, I think, than it ever had in a sense of um, not needing to kind of struggle to get to another place. There is a much, I think I, it's a good thing that people are looking around them and building out into other parts of, of other boroughs, you know, that it is extremely cool to live in Brooklyn. Part, you know, it's great to go to Queens and use the city in a way that, you know, my kids, when I first moved to New York, you went downtown and ran around and did that. My kids are literally all over the city and, you know, all the way growing up. So it, we people, we use it differently. And I think that, that has been a really fabulous development over these 40 years of, of, a, of a city of almost, you know, eight and a half million people really fully understanding their flex a little bit more. And I think that's cool. You know, you, you mentioned white flight uh, in, your, in your opening remarks. Um, but when I think about it, it, it was really um, flight to safety. Uh, New York had a perception and reality of, uh, of real crime. And the real crime was occurring in the 1970s. I think it scared a lot of uh, young people with kids that they had to move out into the suburbs. Into the suburbs. Yeah, I, I think you can have both. You know, I think it's, I think it's slightly, I, I think it, it's, you, can, you can have a reasonable fear, but also... Um, have have racist underpinnings to it you know i mean i think that that's just a, a, a one doesn't forgive the other i mean i think we this is a discussion that is um it's a serious thing we need to be able to melt together i don't think it's an either or oh, let's, let's let's break it down just for a second so uh in the late 1980s i was working at solomon brothers and uh trisha miley worked at Solomon, and she worked mm -hmm. out, you know, I, I knew and worked with her, uh, and she was a Central Park jogger, and she was brutally raped yep. uh, in Central Park. And I remember when the news came out the next day, the talk on the desk was, what was she doing going into Central Park uh, at sundown? I mean, you have to be insane to do that. Why did she risk her life going for a jog at sunset? Um, and then, you know, today, we don't view that as a risky thing. And the question is, how, why did New York City become safe and will it remain safe? Um, you know, you, well, you talked a lot about... Of, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, crime is crime and sort of safety is, is a major um, part of this whole arc of the city. And I think 
one of the things that is I wanted to pull out was to sort of look at that moment and say, well, gee, there's, you know, Giuliani and Bratton get this great amount of credit for what they did. Was that what turned the city around? And really, um, there were so many other factors. There were so many other factors that went into the rise of crime over this period. Um, but the, often the solution, that kind of we're just going to get rid of crime, had kept us from really looking back and seeing that the housing changes in the city, the Koch's housing program ended ending up so many units, getting rid of vacant lots and the kind of urban decay that, you know, if you're selling crack, that's what you want. You know, it was very much in their interest to let buildings rot. And so the city actually creating that much more housing was one important piece of it. There's a whole um, look at crime. Crack had already kind of peaked at a certain moment. Um, certainly it was during that, you know, Central Park Jogger was a, a peak moment for that. But a lot of things dovetailed together and were not necessarily and certainly weren't that thing that was predict, predicted, this super predator um, kind of evolution of where things were going with young black boys in the city. I mean, it was like that was all BS fundamentally. What the other factors are, I mean, I kind of lay it out in the book. There's about 10 of them, including um, Stephen Levitt's theory about a or legalized abortion, changing it, the lead paint laws having something to do with it, all kind of threads that go in there that meet more active policing. And the crime rate, which is already dropping under Dinkins, falls through the ground. You know, sadly, so many of the people who are um, the killers are also the victims, and that whole kind of network collapses. Is it going to get worse? The perceived the perception of crime is, is for the city at large, really the biggest issue beyond crime, because the fact is the people who most suffer from it are um, not the people who have the ability or the desire to run away from the city, frankly. So the perception of crime is what really creates that kind of overall city sense of fear. Uh, the numbers now, as much as they have ticked up, are nothing like what they were um, at the early points of, of Koch or the early points of Dinkins. They're, they're simply not. And I think as more people come back into the city and life kind of pumps back in, more people around the streets um, and stores that are now closed at 7, which were usually closed at 10, are opening back up again. There's more lights and people. Some of those numbers will go down. In terms of gun crime, that to me is a national issue. You know, you can't look at New York City and say, mm, New York's got a big problem when 40 million guns were sold in, New in, in the United States last year. Um, even though the city is kind of wrapped by like-minded states with similar laws, we've all seen certainly in, in Chicago, Illinois, you can only pass so many laws, you still, people can still bring guns in. And so that's also a, a national issue, fundamentally, if you're talking about gun crime in New York. But um, you know, I, I think that as the it'll be an interesting summer, um, but I think ultimately crime is it will bank uh, in New York going ahead. Hey, I have actually uh, one question here it's, before you go to, to Carol, and it's basically how do you what what are some things about the mayoral and the city council elections that you know kind of people should be looking for? Or you find interesting, or you know, you know, I, I mean, ranked choice voting is completely like throwing everything up in the air. Um, you know, the, the city went to, I don't know if I have time to explain ranked choice voting, but rather than going to top two candidates or look, you know, to get through a runoff or get to a, over 50%, now it is ranked choice voting. So they're going to, you go through round by round and distribute, you know, you, you don't just vote for one person, you vote for three. Yep. And so that is, 
the expectations that people had that they would produce a kind of kinder, gentler primary where people formed coalitions in order to get second votes, blah, 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 out the window. I mean, it seems like it's going to go up for grabs these last two months or month and a half. And, you know, the involvement of, of Yang, it's, it's kind of crazy. So it'll be interesting. All I can say is, it'll, you know, fasten your seatbelts because it's going to be a fascinating couple months here. Thanks, Tom. All right, we're going to go Mary. on to um, pleasure. Uh, we're going to go on to our beverage panel next. So this topic is the future for wine and spirits. Uh, we'll have four speakers who will go in order, and then we'll open up to a question and answer period afterwards. Um, our first speaker in this panel is Carol Reber. She is Executive Vice President, Chief Marketing Officer, and Direct to Consumer Officer at Duckhorn Winery. Carol, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Larry. Um, well, I'm going to talk a little bit about the reasons that we drink. Um, and before I get into that, um, I do want to point out, uh, I, will, I will leave it to others to talk about drinking in excess. I'm going to focus on the reasons we drink, um, hopefully, hopefully in moderation. Um, and, um, and I think those, those reasons are, um, are complex, but, um, but, but hardwired. Um, so, so I think in, in reverse order um, of impact, um, lots of us drink to, um, to unwind, um, complement a meal, particularly with wine. Um, all of you who homeschooled children during COVID um, absolutely know this feeling. Uh, for many of us um, in, the, in the heat or peak of the pandemic, an adult libation was the was the only difference between um, sanity and insanity, and between one's work day um, and uh, the portion of uh, of one's non-work day. Uh, to the extent that there was there was much of that. Um, uh, lots of us drink for reasons of social branding and identification. Um, just like the cars we drive, the clothes we wear. Um, it's part of our identity. I'm a tequila guy. I'm a Chardonnay gal. Ain't no laws when you're drinking claws, uh, people. If you've seen those bumper stickers uh, around, uh, probably not around New York City much, I would, I would uh, gather, but uh, some of the more uh, rural parts of the country, you'll see those. Um, and I think uh, one of the most innate uh, reasons that we uh, that we drink alcohol um, is, um, uh, I think, uh, has to do with the Harvard uh, Grant Longitudinal Study, a uh, very famous study many people are aware of. Uh, it was a 75-year uh, longitudinal study, longest, one of the longest ever conducted, um, which um, ultimately, probably inadvertently, found the secret uh, to a fulfilling life. The study tracked uh, the physical and emotional well-being of 700 uh, people since they were teenagers and 38. Uh, the group was really varied, all men uh, from various economic and social backgrounds from Boston. Uh, JFK was even part of the group. Uh, these people were evaluated every two years. And the, the goal of the study was to identify predictors of, of healthy aging. Um, and the finding um, when, uh, when all of the data was collected after uh, many decades is that the secret to fulfilling life is our connection with others um, and, in particular, belonging. We are absolutely hardwired to our core um, to connect with others. 
Um, it's vital to our to our survival and our mental and emotional well-being. Our authentic relationships matter. Um, clearly, there are many paths to that, um, and um, enjoying connections um, with loved ones um, over a drink, a glass of something is uh, is is one of many paths. Not not required, but a very uh, a very common, well-worn path. Um, our entire business is set up around this premise of connection, um, authentic connections to each other. Uh, when you come to our tasting rooms, you don't come alone. Um, obviously, being a member is an uh, important part of our of our offerings, but um, we believe that a, a stellar glass, in our case of, of Pinot Noir or Cabernet, um, is is absolutely part of the um, of the good life. Um, Talking a little bit about how beverage consumption changed during COVID, uh, many of you did some excellent work in bibing, in bibing your way through. Uh, National Wine Day seemed to last from March 16th to December 31st, so uh, terrific work there. Um, but there were a few notable trends that, um, that uh, had already taken root. They just accelerated at a faster rate. Um, certainly e-everything. We've talked about uh, education today. Um, e-grocery, e-delivery, the e-tail explosion, um, wine.com sales were up uh, double, uh, platforms like Drizzly and Instacart grew more than 300%, um, lots of channel shifting when 80% of restaurants went offline, restaurateurs scrambled to master delivery, uh, they managed to figure out how to sell wine and cocktails to go um, really masterfully after some, some trial and error. Um, consumers bought directly from um, from makers. There are millions of direct new relationships that suppliers, um, small craft suppliers, um, now have. Um, and people did a lot of cross drinking. Beer people drank wine. Wine people consumed spirits. Um, all across the board. Um, so that kind of category curiosity um, um, bodes bodes well. In in home consumption. Um, clearly an important trend. Mixology blossomed. Um, people um, planted gardens, cooked from home. Uh, you couldn't find flour or yeast anywhere, for those of you uh, who were looking for that. Uh, social and Instagram exploded. Uh, 7X. Uh, some of you may have found great amusement following uh, the author Susan Orlean and her wine exploits during the pandemic. Virtual happy hours abounded. Um, the pandemic, as we call it, a huge shortage in aluminum uh, won't be a permanent trend, but um, uh, is a uh, a relevant trend that's still shaping uh, can shortages for a lot of us. And um, in social, the Pelo Winos, uh, the Peloton Wine Group is 15,000 people strong, bigger than the uh, Peloton uh, Palo Keto Group. I'm happy to say. Um, and uh, so we're seeing this merging of, of social, community, exercise, wine, and affinity groups. Um, so uh, lastly, <coughs> excuse me, Americans started pantry loading and then largely reversed course. Um, a lot of us were uh, not sure of the financial situation. Obviously, when the stock market crashed, there was a lot of pantry loading of boxed wine, um, people ultimately settled in, those who realized their financial security was not at risk, had a lot of pent-up spending uh, that they would have normally um, spent on eating, uh, eating out, traveling, um, buying cars, etc. And uh, those dollars uh, clearly went into uh, eating and drinking well. Uh, for any of you looking for online uh, fine meats or seafoods uh, during the peak of the pandemic, uh, most of most of that was was pretty well picked over. 
Um, and then Shoptimism uh, really took took over um, as people looked for affordable luxuries, uh, handbags, shoes, cosmetics, uh, fine wine and spirits. Um, uh, that was a great trend that I think will continue in the next year. Um, and really has carried us into uh, 2021 and will set the stage um, for some of our other conversations from panelists. Um, uh, lots of new drinkers entering the category. This is We are in a golden age of, of beverage innovation in the United States, both alcoholic and non-alcoholic. Um, low alcohol trends are, are real. Consumers don't need scores uh, or validation the way they used to. Um, and a thirst for experiences um, is definitely taking center stage. Thank you, Carol. All right, we're going to move on to our second speaker in this panel. That's Carlton Fowler. Carlton is the managing partner at Goat Rodeo Capital Management, and he is also the former spirits innovation and brand developer at Gallo Winery. Go ahead, Carlton. Thanks, Larry. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, very briefly, for the benefit of the listeners, uh, Larry has granted me a little extra time to describe to everyone what the three-tiered system that governs regulation on beverage alcohol is. Essentially, think of it as a vestigial tale um, of the end of prohibition. You know, the 21st Amendment ascribed to the states the power and responsibility to separate and regulate the tiers of beverage alcohol namely suppliers, and those can be as large as the $100 billion market cap Diageo or as small as a micro distillery, um, they sell to distributors. Um, distributors warehouse the product. They comply with the various state laws. Very importantly, they collect federal excise tax, um, and they also get the product to the retailers. Um, and then the retailers, again, they can be on-premise. That is places where the alcohol is actually consumed on the premise, like a bar, or they could be off-premise, uh, meaning liquor stores, grocery stores, et cetera, depending on individual state laws. So it's, I think it's going to be useful for, for a lot of these talks to have that, that basic understanding. Um, and then as far as, as mine, I, I find these quick talks are actually always best if I try and convey a simple pattern of facts. Um, one set that is pretty obvious, um, one set that's a little bit more interesting, and hopefully one that is a little bit more heretical. Uh, but all of which are hopefully actionable. So for the obvious set, um, it is impossible to ignore, and Carol highlighted this a little bit, just how much the consumer is continuing to adopt digital or e-commerce. And beverage alcohol is no exception there. What is a little less obvious is how much that is changing our industry. Uh, before the pandemic, beverage alcohol actually had an e-com penetration rate of less than 2%. Um, and while that penetration rate quickly doubled during the pandemic, if you contrast that with the average rates and other fast-moving consumer goods, those are about 20%. So we have a long way to go, uh, and we will catch up very quickly. I would argue that the low e-com penetration rates in our industry are a result of some of this archaic regulatory structure, but again, they're, they're, they're moving to catch up quite quickly. Um, additionally, when you factor in the additional costs of delivery and last mile in e-com, Basket size, or dollars per cart, is really everything in a world where Amazon has trained consumers to expect that delivery should be free. Delivering a head of lettuce through an entire supply chain, fresh to someone's door, is very hard, and it's very low margin. Delivering a $50 bottle of wine or whiskey is comparatively much easier. Said pretty bluntly, this is a quarter of a trillion dollar category in the U.S. alone that has a very high incentive structure to reorient $50 billion or more of its total value to a digital supply chain and go to market in the next 12 to 24 months. And that's really just to catch up. 
to paraphrase the late Senator Dirksen, a couple billion here and a couple billion there, and pretty soon you're talking about real money. For the interesting fact set, in keeping with my theme around digitization of beverage alcohol and how that affects consumer behavior, I'd like to explore what is happening around the last mile providers. What I mean by last mile is that the well-capitalized logistics and delivery companies. You all may have heard of one. It's called Amazon. The others are less known, but growing just as fast. GoPuff, DoorDash, and Uber. All of these companies have their sites set on beverage alcohol. It's a massive market, yet a product that isn't particularly complex to deliver. You don't really need to take my word for it. Uber paid over a billion dollars for Drizzly, and GoPuff just paid over $350 million for the entire liquor chain BevMo rather than build their network from the ground up. As to why this is interesting, the U.S. market has been historically fractured in its third or retail tier. There are well over 100,000 outlets in the U.S. selling beverage alcohol, a retail penetration rate second really only to water. What this has been historically is that because of this highly fragmented retail base, just about any idea under the sun can get to be tried by an entrepreneur in this space. Because most buyers represent only one or two locations, every product has a chance to get on the shelf somewhere but it also necessitates a robust distribution tier to serve all these locations. And that distribution tier has a lot of fixed costs locked in. While a giant distributor like Southern Wine and Spirits might be great at logistics benchmarked in their industry, does anyone on this call really think that they will beat Amazon at logistics 10 years from now? We as consumers are increasingly viewing our consumption experience through the screen on the phone in our pockets. And these last mile providers are making that screen the new retail tier, and it will have huge echo effects throughout the industry. Brands and suppliers that understand that and prepare for that world will thrive when the supply chain and the go-to-market is increasingly digitized, and brands that don't will be left behind. So finally, something heretical. If what I say above is true, number one, that e-com is coming quickly, and number two, that the last mile providers will be investing very heavily in facilitating that world, then how fast might these changes come to pass? Surely, these large distributors will push back. After all, Southern Wine and Spirits had 2019 sales of $20 billion, and who wouldn't want to protect that? As much as the large distributors would resist any legislative change through lobbying, that is not the only way. There's also a judicial path. Without turning this into a law seminar, there was a landmark Supreme Court case in 20, 2005 called Granholm versus Heald that essentially allowed wine commerce in some circumstances to transact without the distribution and retail tiers to over 95% of the population. I'd be happy to explain those circumstances in the Q&A more, but what is important is those exact same circumstances are starting to build in the spirits category. My heretical statement is, I think we are actually three years or less away from a similar judicial decision in spirits and even and or beer, which could revolutionize those industries from a business model standpoint. Um, and and that, that, that amount of margin could drop to the bottom line, similar to, that, similar to the way it's happened in wine. Thanks, Larry. Thank you. All right. Up next, David Epstein, co-founder of Tom's Town Distilling Company. Uh, a manufacturer of craft bourbons, gins, and tobaccos. All right, David, take it away. Thanks, Larry. In 1896, the son of a furniture salesman is born in St. Cloud, Minnesota. That boy's name is F. Scott Fitzgerald. And in 1917, after a stint at Princeton University, Fitzgerald heads to Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, just outside of Kansas City, drafted as a soldier in the European theater of World War I. The head of Fort Leavenworth at the time, by the way, was the future president of the United States, Dwight D. Eisenhower, whom Fitzgerald despised. He wasn't at Fort Leavenworth long, but F. Scott Fitzgerald would no doubt have heard of and most likely been in awe of a young swashbuckling bootlegger named Tom Pendergast. 
the future emperor of the Midwest, the boss of the Paris of the Plains, Kansas City. Tom's reign was so complete and so powerful that the Las Vegas of its day, Kansas City, was known simply as Tomstown. As Scott Fitzgerald leaves Fort Leavenworth with a head full of ideas on fabulous wealth, booze, power, and raw politics, and indeed, and indeed writes The Great Gatsby about five years later in 1923. The Great Gatsby is, in short, the fictitious novel based on a very real person named Tom Pendergast, the city boss of Kansas City, Missouri. For me, being the grandson of a rival bootlegger to Tom Pendergast, I too have been enthralled with this part of my family's lore for decades. And when I began Tom's Town Distilling Company five years ago, I knew very well that authentic characters like Mr. Pendergast were rare and complicated and extraordinary. January 19, 1920 was the first day of prohibition. I call that the greatest day of Tom Pendergast's life. For the next 13 years, Boss Tom ruled Kansas City and most parts of the Midwest like a personal piggy bank and fiefdom. The alcohol flowed, the cradle of jazz is born, and the Roaring Twenties becomes synonymous with cocktails, jazz clubs, speakeasies, and little, if any, acknowledgement of the rule of law. This period in American history ended not in one year, not in five years, but 13 years later on December 5th, 1933. By the mid-1930s, Mr. Pendergast had finally played his last card at the poker table of American politics, and he was finally put in prison uh, for failing to report a bribe on his taxes, by the way. A Kansas City star goes to visit him in prison and asks him, how did you do this? 250 speakeasies, the birth of jazz, and not one alcohol-related arrest in the entire city's history, and his answer was, the people are thirsty, and that indeed is our tagline. Almost 80 years later, I founded Tomstown with my business partner with the desire to build an authentic craft distillery that paid homage to the era of Mr. Pendergast, my grandfather, and with an eye towards creating game-changing spirits that reflect the spirit of the jazz age, but with, for, the, for the modernized, for the palette of current tastes. In the heart of downtown Kansas City, we built an Art Deco tasting room, urban distillery, and event space. In 2019, over 90,000 customers walked through our doors, and many became the evangelists for our libations and spirits and spread the word. And in 2021, we announced our partnership as the official gin of the Kansas City Chiefs. No doubt, the pandemic has not been kind to many facets of the world's economy, and the craft spirit industry is absolutely no exception. You may be saying, no way. I hear that everyone is drinking more and more, and all spirits are hitting sales records all over the country. No doubt the pandemic has been good for drinking, but devastating for brands that rely on in-person discovery. There is no doubt much will be said about the overall volume increase in alcohol sales during the pandemic. But those statistics are results from the established corporate brands and not craft distillers. According to Nielsen, off-premise sales, which means liquor stores and grocery stores, are up about 30%. Despite this massive growth, sales revenue for craft distilleries is expected to decline by $700 million in 2020, about 40% of this sector. Now, the pandemic has in some ways changed how consumers buy liquor and of course, where they are consuming liquor. A quote I saw from a board member of the Oregon Distillers Guild said, people are drinking, but they are not shopping. A really stunning illustration of this is that large volume bottles, one liter or larger, saw an absolutely massive spike in sales, rising about 80% over the period in 2019. Most, if not all, 
of these craft distillers sell their spirits in the traditional 750 millimeter bottles. And those, in fact, remain stagnant during the pandemic. The key for craft distilleries is, remains three things, distillery visits, bartender menu recommendations, and in-store tastings, none of which could have occurred in 2020. But we're now past four months into 2021. The pandemic has eased the United States, and the Roaring Twenties are inching their way back. In fact, in Ken Burns' PBS series Prohibition, there are several scholars that said they, quote, woefully underestimated the impact on the 1918 pan pandemic on the Roaring Twenties. As Fitzgerald himself said, quote, we never wanted to look in the rearview mirror again. And with the massive shift in cultural attitudes at the time, the country knew the world ushered in a decade of partying and explosion of societal changes that hadn't been seen since the Civil War. I believe we are on the doorstep of, of a similar revolution, hopefully without the bookend of a Great Depression, that will, revi will revi rival the roaring 1920s where social media, consumer online shopping, and a general feeling of community and indeed craving for social interaction away from the screens and back into the physical world is inevitable. As anyone knows, after reading Sapiens, we are not just social animals, but wired to be part of something greater for our own survival. So let's all go belly up to the bars and toast the Roaring Twenties with a Tomstone Martini, Gimbal or Manhattan. Or as Jay Gatsby himself said, quote, and so with the sunshine and the great bursts of leaves growing on the trees, just as things grow in fast movies, I had that familiar conviction that life was beginning all over again with the summer. Thanks, Larry. Sounds great, David. Thank you. Our last speaker on the, in this panel and last speaker for today's show is Mike Novi. Mike is the president and chief operating officer of 818 Spirits, which is Kendall Jenner's new tequila brand. Fire away, Mike. All right. Thanks, Larry. Hi, everybody. So if you haven't seen 818 Tequila in your local liquor store or restaurant yet, you're not alone. We're actually launching our brand on May 17th in California, and then it should be in most of the states where you are residing in July or just after. So um, 818 Tequila was the brainchild of Kendall Jenner, who, as Larry frames up, uh, grew up in a reality TV family uh, but she's also carved out a really strong career as one of the top-earning fashion models in the world today. So I'm going to tell you that I think that reality TV stars an ideal face for consumer products for several different reasons. First, by the very nature of how we know them, which is watching them in their homes from the comfort of ours, we feel more intimately connected to them. And second, because they hustle. Reality TV stars are part actors, part entrepreneurs. They know how to work hard. Case in point, Kendall Jenner, the founder of my company, 818 Tequila, grew up in reality TV, but has transcended not just into modeling, but into a series of other businesses. Um, so celebrities get connected to brands fundamentally in two ways. One is a company who owns a brand goes looking for something to re-energize it, um, or energize it or re-energize it. But they go looking for a celebrity spokesperson, and then they create a backstory about how that celebrity has a passion for this category or for the brand. Second way is that the celebrity has an idea and searches out a business partner to bring the idea to life. That's the way that uh, my company came into the world. So when I took a look at, um, as Larry said, I was actually working on another business when this one came along, I had a checklist for the things that needed to be there for this to make sense. And I think this is kind of the blueprint for how a celebrity or in this instance, a re uh, TV uh, reality celebrity 
um, and model um, can be successful in the spirits business. So first I asked, is Kendall committed to the business and willing to put in the hours on the type of activities required to build a business in this industry? So first and foremost, it was clear to me that she comes from one of the hardest working families that I've encountered. It's just fundamentally in her DNA. Uh, two, um, Kendall's in tune with styles and brands, and you know she felt like there were many good tequilas on the market, but none that spoke to her as a consumer, and she was willing to put in a lot of time and effort to try to formulate and create and then bring to the world something that actually did just that. So her vision was a next generation tequila brand that was more casual, more approachable, more youthful, more social in terms of that social interaction kind of as Carol spoke to that consumers are looking for, and also more socially conscious. So um, also as an aside, 818 is the area code that Kendall grew up in. And she wanted something in this name that symbolized inclusiveness. So a consumer being figuratively invited to make a connection with Kendall through a drink that she, Kendall, loves at a place that is the most personal to her. So for the past four years, she has been working on this idea, going from finding someone who could help her locate distilleries to someone who could guide on all the regulatory hurdles that are required. And then there's just your fundamental business management, brand marketing, and supply chain. It all had to be kind of put together. Um, her work ethic and commitment to me was really very, very clear when on the first call that I did with her, she um, first was willing to make the whole group shift their schedule to a Saturday trip to uh, go down to Guadalajara to go over to Tequila so that I could be a part of that trip. And then secondly, tell the group that was flying uh, privately out of LA that they would be wheels up at three in the morning so that by the time they hit the ground at Guadalajara and got over to Tequila about 45 minutes away, they would have a very full day of work. Again, that was a full day of work on a Saturday. She won me over with that one. But then I wanted to know, is this celebrity, in this case, Kendall, accessible for whatever's needed, not just for the fun stuff. So even this past week, um, you know, Kendall has been involved in every facet of the business. She's done Zoom calls with me with national account buyers. We went up and down the street in New York to see some key um, retailers and on-premise operators. Um, she is, you know, deeply plugged into what we do with our marketing agency, with our distilling partner, working in our production plan. And in fact, uh, the last text that I had of the night on Friday was at 10.30 from Kendall, who was following up on something that she and I had talked about earlier. But then, you know, is, this, is she relevant to the target audience, and can she be the voice of a tequila brand? So I looked into this, and, you know, clearly, I tell you, if you don't have the answer to that question, ask your 21 to 35-year-old children, friends, or coworkers, and the answer is a resounding yes. Interestingly as well, tequila is a, growing, a category of growing popularity across all consumer demographics in the U.S. It's really been amazing. It's really been explosive over the past three years or so. Uh, one reason for that is I think we're just more accepting and more interested in things like, you know, we've seen Mexican beer explode and Mexican food um, at a higher quality level. Um, the tequilas that people are adopting now are also kind of in that same vein. They're better crafted. They're better styled. They're really, you know, so much different than what they once were when we needed salt and lime and a strong grimace to endure the experience of drinking tequila. It's also become very popular with young women. So it's broadly um, accepted across all demographics, but it's really strong with young women. Um, and women who like drinking it on the rocks to have a seat at the table with their male counterparts. And by the way, Dora, thank you for that insight when we talked earlier this week. Um, 
Kendall is a relevant style setter across a variety of different attributes, and that is incredibly relevant to us, of course. And I'll give you some quantitative validation of her relevance. If you go to her Instagram account, and then you go and you check out you know, Twitter and, um, and TikTok, she has over 200 million people following her on social media. Her family, all combined, has over a billion, with a B. Our, our Instagram account, which is at drink18, I encourage everybody to check that out at some point, already at last count when I checked earlier today had 423,000 uh, followers. When I looked this morning, when I first woke up, it was 422,000. So people are interested in what Kendall has to say and what Kendall's going to do with the brand. Um, that's obviously you know, very compelling in a lot of different ways. It's also economically very attractive because that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars of global media if you had to go and buy it. She also speaks very naturally and honestly about coming into the category as a consumer. So she doesn't position herself as something that she's not. She doesn't claim to have grown up in a tequila producing family. She doesn't say that she's a master distiller. And I think that's also one of the keys to any celebrity being a part of the um, spirits or wine or beer industry. Um, in fact, I actually think that her personality is one of our secret weapons. Most of the buyers that we've talked to have called her warm. They said her enthusiasm is infectious. Maybe the highest compliment, if you think about the world that she's grown up in, they say she seems really normal. Um, and then the last thing that was on my checklist, and this will be one that I imagine will be in follow-up questions, is, is this celebrity controversial or might they be? Some of you may have seen a couple of months ago, if you're familiar with our brand or Kendall being in the tequila business, it's probably because we got a lot of press about cultural appropriation and whether she should have the rights to be bringing a tequila to the U.S. Um, you know, we are all very aware of that risk, but I will tell you, and maybe ironically, that has probably become one of our greatest opportunities um, as every gatekeeper who saw that actually came to me with a list, and I have it right here in front of me. The running list is at least 12 to 15 male names of um, you know, U.S. or European celebrities who have been involved in tequila, and there are many more in rum and other categories, none of whom were criticized for cultural appropriation. So of course, we try to balance the, you know, the question and the issue of cultural appreciation versus cultural appropriation, and we look at our investment and our partnership in the community as collaboration versus colonization, but that is going to be probably one of our most dynamic um, issues that we're going to be dealing with as a business. So to wrap up my section, I know why you might initially perceive 818 Tequila as a reality TV star brand, Larry and Todd. And clearly not all celebrity partnerships are good business decisions, but I see this one as a very strong proposition and it's a beautiful product founded by a very smart woman who happened to start her career in reality TV. So far, my point of view has been validated by Kroger, Safeway, BevMo, Total Wine and More, Target, ABC stores, all who uh, are going to bring, be bringing in our product as well as some of the best hotels, bars and restaurants in the country that are waiting for us to launch. So with that, I thank you for the time, Larry, and I look forward to the, the, the questions that we'll have. All right, Mike, let's start with you in the Q&A. Um, 200 million followers on social media. I, the population of the United States is just 330. Um, mm -hmm. what, is that, what does that mean? What are they following? How engaged are they with her? And when she says, I've got this tequila, it's so good, you've got to try it, what happens? How does that play itself out yeah. into the brand itself? So, yeah, clearly there's a large percentage of the U.S. population that's following um, Kendall Jenner, which was a really big surprise to me. 
actually, I did not follow her on social media. I have never followed any of her family. I've never watched any. I had not watched any of the, the family shows. So this was actually a really big eye-opener for me. What's interesting about it is not just the breadth of followership or the pure number of people that are following, but you, you hit the nail on the head when you said engagement. They're highly engaged followers. And I think that's actually one of the really um, you know, interesting elements of social media if you can harness it properly. So you know, what they're interested in is almost everything she does. And it's really interesting right, that people um, kind of are, are that excited to um, like, comment, repost, you know, react, and really just kind of have a dialogue you know, with somebody like her. So from a business perspective, wildly powerful as a platform to reach consumers and not just push communication out to them, but have a dialogue with them. You know, people asking when can they have it? What's it going to taste like? You know, all these things. It just opens up a really important channel for us of communication with consumers. Now, she's not the first um, celebrity to have her own brand, um, whether it be in tequila or alcohol or, or whatnot. Um, how does that usually play itself out when a celebrity says, I'm interested in this and here's my brand and, and how to how does the public normally respond to something like that? Well, I can tell you what my experience has been, which is, um, and I'll give you the most re recent experience, which is the first time you tell them that you've got a brand and who's connected with, they say, oh, great, another celebrity brand, right? Because to your point, there's been a lot of people who have done it. Now, the interesting thing is how people have done it. And again, as I mentioned at the start of my section, a lot of it, a lot of celebrity brand endorsement has come from a marketing manager in a large multinational spirits company looking for a way to get some excitement around their brand. And so it becomes a fairly inauthentic situation, right, where somebody comes in and pretends like they love this tequila, they love this rum, they love this vodka. So that's kind of one thing that I think is really critical is the authenticity. Like where did this come from? Where did the idea come from? Where does the passion come from? How legitimate and, and enduring is it? And then also they're just their involvement. There are plenty of celebrities and some very, very big name celebrities who have attached their name to something and then just expected that the paychecks would roll in without any further effort. So it really just comes down to are they, like in any business, right, are you willing to put in the hours and do the work or are you just going to sit back and put your name on it and expect people to come to you? That second model me, doesn't work. Let me give you a different example uh, of someone like, like a fake character. Um, take the Dos Equis, the most interesting man in the world uh, routine that they had going on. Um, how do you benefit by being, um, you know, a real person versus, or just called a fake, uh, and creating this this image? And what what is the real benefit of that real Kendall to uh, instill both engagement, interest? I mean, what's going to you? You gave the example also of I'm going to combine this question with real person versus fake, and how does it connect with that 21-year-old woman who is going to hit the bar and order her drink uh, from the bartender? How does, that, how does that whole process work? So I think that we've become, we have better access to, um, to research, and I'll use that term research loosely, but being able to do our homework on, on what's real and what's not. I think we have, as consumers, become more cynical and probing in terms of you know what we're going to accept because celebrity spokespeople have been you know have promoting categories you know all kinds of categories right forever as long as there have been celebrities as long as there have been products and then like within the idea of a of a character like I think back and you know we talked about you mentioned wine coolers when you were opening up this mm -hmm. section of, of the, the conversation you had Frank and Ed right they were a couple of characters who were made up but we love them right and then there's the the 
um, the most interesting man of the world. He's actually a pretty entertaining guy to watch in commercials. But there lacked, there was depth that was missing to that, that I think you cannot have now. You, ha- you cannot have that shallowness now because people are going to see right through it. And as we're experiencing, even when you are a real person, they're going to push and probe and um, you know, try to see how you know, authentic your commitment and your participation is. So I just don't think you can get away with it as easily now as you could, right, well, even, me, even a few me, years back. Let me bring David Epstein into the conversation. David, um, we've just heard about branding around a character. This is a young fashion model TV reality star. And you spent, um, I think, two or three minutes of your six minutes trying to establish our own connection with Tom Pendergast, a 100-year-old um, you know, Kansas City bootlegger. Why did you decide to go with Pendergast versus someone uh, currently living why did you think that that was a way to brand something? And then as a follow-up, what, um, and you spent hardly any time talking about the taste or the originality of the craft, it's, uh, of the craft bourbon itself. Why do you want to uh, put it with a person versus with a taste or, uh, or craftsmanship? I think in a word, and Larry, you only gave me six minutes, but in a yeah. word. It, <laughs> you, uh, you chose how to use it. <laughs> it's authenticity. And what Mike is talking about also, I, I could be wrong, but with is the enormous shift in celebrity culture. Ten years ago, if Julia Roberts was wearing a watch, you wanted that watch. Now it's about it really is the social media stars. And uh, that, uh, a, Kendall, a Kendall Jenner is to a, uh, somebody in craft let alone the fact that Mike's going to be in, in basically 50 states in about an hour. That is, that is not accessible to 99.9% of the population. So for, for someone like us or anyone in craft, and there's 2,000 craft distilleries in the United States at last count, a little bit less than that, you have to really uh, find what your personality will be. And there is such a desire for um, even pre-pandemic of that authenticity of, of someone real. I, I think I told you that when I used to live in New York City, I, I lived next to the president of Proximo, and I kept telling him the story about Pendergast, and at first he thought it was fake. And finally, after telling him this about for about six months, he finally said to me, I have to tell you, if you don't do this, I am, because there just are so few authentic American stories that are left in, in, this, in this world. We then shift pretty quickly to uh, the, our spirits. Our craft vodka has won the most gold medals of any craft vodka in the United States, and the gin has won just about every double gold there is in, in the category. Uh, so it, it starts with a beautiful bottle, then an amazing uh, product, and then you have to grab them with the story. And if you don't have Kendall Jenner, you may as well reach back to what your grandpa did, which was bootlegging. <laughs> and how does that relate to, um, I'll, I'll call it mixology? You know, how, how we use these crafts to make something, a cocktail that's very special, either its uniqueness or uh, it's, it combines a sense of taste. Maybe going back to what Carlton was talking about before, something that's sweet, something that's carbonated, and something that gets you drunk. How do you place that craft bourbon, for example, into something to make it extra special? Well, it, from, from our, since we lean so heavily into the Roaring Twenties in that era, 
people are really fascinated right now, currently during this during this podcast, especially whenever Todd Benson is chiming in. I've been drinking a last word, which is gin and chartreuse and a little bit of lime. Those are all prohibition, aviation, bees knees, all those classic cocktails, even a martini. These are really uh, even pre-prohibition cocktails that people just get such a kick out of doing. Now, what some of your, like uh, what Carlton was talking about, and even Carol a little bit, um, the cans. So um, I wasn't supposed to announce this, but Larry, you got it out of me. But in another month, we will be launching our own canned cocktails, something I never thought we would do five years ago. But it's just mm-hmm. too irresistible, and the way that people are drinking has changed so much post-pandemic, we simply had to do it. And what does that mean? What, what kind of canned beverage are you going to provide? Is it a mixed drink? So it's in association with the Chiefs. We have four gin craft cocktails that, that will be in cans. It's not exactly seltzer. These are not low calories. It's all flavor forward. So this will be a cocktail in a can and t- kind of the premiumization of that. We call it kind of the fever tree of canned cocktails. I don't want, we are premium, we are priced premium accordingly. I don't want to throw all that energy out that we've worked for the last five years on. So these will be kind of higher priced for the market, kind of a premium canned cocktail if there can be such a thing. Going back to branding a second, you've mentioned now the Kansas City Chiefs a couple of times. Um, Why does the consumer care that the Kansas City Chiefs, uh, that you're the official cocktail of the Kansas City Chiefs? Why does everybody care? You know, we really did it. They are the most beloved for every Q score. You can have everyone really, they're the most popular NFL team right now in America. And it just has such a, a resonance. And it, they came to us, quite frankly. Um, the NFL is really putting an emphasis on reuniting themselves with the communities that they are in. And in this case, with the Chiefs, they, they, are, they have the rights in about three states, Oklahoma, Kansas, Missouri, and four states, Nebraska. And it was just a great way for us to put a, a much larger, play much bigger than we really are uh, very quickly in this regional. And for most distilleries that are aspiring to, to grow, at least nationally, you have to begin with a regional presence. And that's how some of these guys that get got bought um, always start with regional. Unless you happen to be like Ryan Reynolds and two years later bought for $650 million in, in a nice little deal. But it really does start with regional. You know, in Chicago, I'm a Chicago guy. So yeah. in Chicago, we've got, um, I, I'll call it three uh, types of institutions, restaurants, bars that relate to uh, sports. We've got Harry Carey's. Mm-hmm. Michael Jordan had a restaurant, and just think Ditka, okay? Ditka is just a, a bigger than uh, bigger than life type of a person. Uh, how do we think about? But there's nothing related to the Cubs, or um, the Bears, or the Bulls. It's individuals. Why in, is your so team oriented? And isn't specific to say McCombs or whoever the great leader of the Kansas City Chiefs are. What what's motivating the team versus uh, having a face behind it? Cash. <laughs> uh, it, it, <laughs> uh, they are. Um, we will be the only gin sponsor in the NFL. So they are. The Chiefs are very proud of dipping their toes into this category. 
Um, and as I say, they came to us. There is simply no way that we could have gotten a Mahomes or um, Travis Kelsey or something like that. But let's let's be honest. There, there's a dark side in it, to that as well, not just on the sports thing, but I can uh, address that uh, from what I've been living for the last two months. Um, and and Mike, maybe hopefully, we'll never have to live this. Actually, um, we had a, a a coach happened to be the the son of a coach who um, got in a very bad car wreck, and it was alcohol related. So sure enough, it's, it's all those things that everybody that associates themselves with a celebrity and every I've worked in advertising for the last two decades always warns people about. I'm anxious to hear how Mike's going to get around this. But it's, it's terrifying, and we thought the whole deal would be potentially scrubbed. Uh, it was, it's not scrubbed, but it's been not without every day loads and loads of trials and tribulations on that. It's, it's a real risk. So you're saying, for example, Hertz's decision to go with OJ as their chief spokesman or uh, Jeep yep. who had the last Super Bowl going with Bruce Springsteen leaves themselves open for just uh, decimating that specific marketing campaign. Is that what you're driving with that? Exactly. And, and you know, so I, uh, Todd and I are both kind of personal friends with, with Paul Rudd. And Paul Rudd has these huge Kansas City connections. And in fact, his, his mom still lives here and sister and that would have made a, a fantastic uh, brand ambassador for Tomstown. And, and as we talked further with Paul, it became pretty obvious he does not participate at all in social media. None. No social media presence. So you have so many factors. One is that, that OJ, Bruce Springsteen factor, what's the risk of their behavior? And the other is you really need them, like Kendall Jenner, to figure out what's that voice to the audience and how is that going to play out with every post that they make? How is that going to resonate to your brand? All right, let's bring Carlton in the conversation. Carlton, um, before we get into distribution and transactions, um, what are your thoughts on brand management as David and Mike have been talking about the role of, uh, of the celebrity and sports teams, et cetera? Well, I, I, I think that because, because we have the investor view um, and, and typically quite a bit of a longer time horizon, um, you're, you're going to find us asking why a lot more to some of these things that, that seem like they're rules of thumb. So you, you heard David say, oh, well, you know, one of the big, the big levers we can pull is getting on menu placements, um, and, and, that, and that drives adoption, or craft grows regionally, um, and, and, and that's the strategy that we're going after. And it's, it's not at all that I, I disagree with those statements as, as much as we spend an awful lot of time saying, okay, why is that important? Um, because at the end of the day, you know, we're, our job is to invest in, in, in brands that we think are going to grow and scale. Um, and, and it keeps coming back to me um, to just a, a very simple consumer journey pathwards. First, you must be aware, then you can try, then you can repeat, and then you can potentially evangelize. Um, and and as, as long as you keep that, that fairly simple framework in place, th then you can start to fill in the rest of the puzzle, which is, okay, this is how you know, distributors have historically acted, um, and this is what historically motivates them, therefore we must do this. Or in a brave new digital world where there's significantly less friction to drive 
awareness and therefore trial, then all of a sudden, you know, you know, having a celebrity behind you can do this. So I, th- I think, I think from our standpoint, Larry, it, it's much more thinking through, um, not, not driving a necessarily distinction between craft versus large or craft versus scale, which is how, how, how do you, how do you take whatever the limitations are of, of a brand where it's starting and figure out how to scale it faster. Um, and almost exclusively, we come back to this notion of the more friction you can take out of the system as far as communication, be it digital, the faster these things are going to be able to scale. Um, the 100-pound or 1,000-pound gorilla in the room is, uh, is Amazon on logistics. Are they just going to win this thing if, we, if it opens up? Are they just going <laughs> to offer – because they already have you know, these distribution centers on the ground. They probably can get it there same day. Um, you know, it, the website's going to be so easy to use. Um, they deliver on Sundays. Like, how does Amazon not win this? Well, in, in, in the same way that, that, you know, Shopify is the head of the anti-Amazon coalition. You know, going, going back to this, this major distinction between craft and large, like, yes, absolutely, the big last miles are going to have something to say here. Um, a- Amazon being one of them, but you know, GoPuff, which is a, a you know a company that most people haven't even heard of three years ago, but all of a sudden took in like three billion dollars of SoftBank money. You know, they're now piloting the launch of like Travis Scott's Seltzer. Um, all of these things are going to have a, a a a big a big stick in this arena. But like consumers still want choice. They still want to have discovery. Um, so there, it will always be balanced out by platforms that, that, that help enable discovery and, and, you know, an interesting consumer journey. And, and so I, I'm, I'm not overly worried that, that Amazon, you know, software will eat the world, but there'll be enough competing types of software that I, I, I think the consumer experience will actually be better five years from oh, now, sure. not, not worse. Well, just talk about choice for a second. So let's start with the bookstore as an analogy. So the bookstore, the small town bookstore is like your small town liquor store. They got some choices. It seems like there's a ton of stuff, but mm-hmm. Amazon will be able to have everything. Um, just like you can get any book from Amazon where the bookstore only has whatever, a thousand SKUs or whatever it does. Uh, and the same is true of your typical liquor store has a certain number, uh, but may not cover the, you know, the Pendergast uh, brand. Um, what do you think of the long tail benefits as it relates to this, to this new logistics problem? Well, I, I, I think it so much comes down, like the, the way I try and break that world out is intention versus attention, right? So absolutely true. Yes, Amazon you know, you know, provided certain, you know, certain regulatory issues change. They'll be able to carry everything because their digital shelf is infinite. But but the the you know what is above the fold what 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 is what is paying you know paying for for placement within that store will still be limited and so there there will always be a role for for a separate kind of platform um, to orient toward towards true segmentation of consumers and trying to find the the consumer that you know will like Tomstown um, and and that's why we focus just as much on on really big. Um, providers like Amazon, you know, as, as we spend equally as much time on what are going to empower 
all these craft brands, which are the super long tail and have tremendous amount of consumer loyalty within, within the subset of consumers that follow them, how do we power their shopping carts? How do we make sure they're getting the proper piece of the pie on, on e-com ads? Um, you know, who, who's giving them the toolkit to go out and actually compete with the major suppliers of the world. And th that's to me where a lot of the opportunity is, is making the Tom's towns of the world more efficient at grabbing their piece of the consumer pie. And what, what and if, we talked about, Larry, can I just, coolers, have, just real quick, can I ask Carlton a question? This is David. Sure. Yeah, I just, so Carlton, it, it, reading between what the lines, it sounds to me like you're, you expect a pretty dramatic change in the next three years. So it, are you fairly bullish then for the, the craft distilleries? Oh, I mean, extremely. You know, no, what, what, what I expect to happen in the next three years kind of as a calling my shot is, is that actually you can use judicial routes to, to potentially you know, erode a piece of the three-tiered system before legislation will move there. But even holding that aside, um, you know what? What truly makes craft unique, and the you know you know the the thousands of craft distillers that are member of Discus, is is that actually the the consumer affinity for those brands. So I I am I am more bullish than just about anything else on building on, on investing in companies that are building toolkits to allow your your craft distillery to compete on a on a digital e-commerce you know, footprint with the largest, the largest brands in the world. And, and, and in fact, because, because you have, you know, probably narrower and, 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 and shallower corporate structures than like a Diageo, for example, you might even be able to be better than they are um, providing you, know, you can find the right voice and positioning. So I, I am hugely bullish on, on craft going forward because I think digital strips um, friction from, from you know from from the overall go-to-market in a way that's only positive for the supplier and the consumer. Let's bring Carol. And Larry, Carol. people, con, con, yeah, consumers will always want something that other people um, can't have easy access to, right? Um, um, uh, people shop in boutiques. Um, people look for uh, finer luxury handbags, shoes, jewelry. Um, all of us are looking for um, that scarce thing that we that we value or um, um, uh, distinguishes us from from others. Um, you see this. Um, you see that this uh, infrastructure and entertainment. There are big studio films. Uh, there are lots of independent studios. Um, that has been the case for years and years and years. Doesn't seem to be waning. Um, so Amazon will um, continue to make inroads, but what they've never been able to do is provide a curated selection. Um, a super example of this is if you walk into um, an Ulta beauty store, um, they're a huge retail success story. You have curated selection on the right-hand side of an Ulta beauty store where, um, where cosmetics are organized by brand. So. Um, you've got Benefit, Clinique, Bare Essentials, all of their products in one place, and you go to the left-hand side of the store, and it's organized like a drugstore, um, where it's kind of all of the mascaras, all of the face creams, all of the brushes, etc. Um, and we as shoppers decide um, in that case, and in general in other industries, how we want to shop. Am I? Do I just need a 
a, a kind of utility um, bottle of wine or spirits for the evenings. I can grab that from the regular store, but when I'm looking for something special and meat, seafood, chocolate, lux- whatever luxury goods, um, I'm going to go someplace special for that. So Amazon will eat up uh, some of the market, but they'll never dominate all of it just because of the way we work. Carol, I, I couldn't, I could not possibly agree more. Uh, you know, the the place where experience matters and and curation matters and and even assistance in the form of uh, you know personnel matters. Um, I, I don't think ever will get fully disaggregated. You know, I'm I'm, I'm actually actively looking for you know who's going to make the Apple Store of of liquor stores, whether it's like a Wally's or something like that, where pe- people are basically making you know you know palaces of consumer choice. That is very right. well insulated. Very well insulated. I, I think, from I think this, this, the smartest marketers will go in the opposite direction um, and really come up with incredible scarcity models. We've got um, a particular wine or two uh, with our Costa Brown Winery that people, when they join our list, they wait two years for um, for the Appalachian Series wines, and then. Uh, it's another 10 years before they get to our um, our four-barrel, $200 bottle Pinnacle wine. Um, mm-hmm. And people love that weight. That weight is is part of the the badge of 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 the value of this. Is how long I had to wait for this incredible triumph in winemaking. Um, so uh, lots of us will need things delivered in an hour, but um, those things that you really savor and value, you're willing to wait for and pay more for That's super interesting. I, this is Todd. I've got a question. And this is really any of you could sort of answer. What happened to beer? <laughs> right. You know, like, you know, like you had like a hundred year runs of a lot of these beers, right? And just, and then it got this and it got, you know, kind of craft came along. And then now basically, you know, we don't have somebody on this panel talking about beer. You're talking about white claw, not about beer. It's just sort of interesting. Just like what happened? Well, I, I I think that the broader answer to this question is like for for, for some reason and a very interesting reason across all Bevalk, this is my opinion only. You 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 seem to have these what I would almost call mega cycles, um, you know, and, and we're we're at the end of like a, a mega cycle of of U.S. domestic light beer ending. Um, you, know, you know, craft beers, you know, was ascendant for a while, but has now kind of reached its, you know, its its level. White Claw's coming in. If you look at it from a, a spirit standpoint, you had a 20-year mega cycle for vodka that, that had a flavored explosion tacked in. We're in the middle of a 20-year mega cycle for whiskey. Um, don't know if we're in the seventh inning or the eighth inning, but, but we're closer to the beginning of the end. And we're at the beginning of a mega cycle for gin. Um, and and the, the, these things just end up m- moving in these big, almost epochal ranges, but but there the, there's not a whole lot of true innovation within there. Um, you, you know, so I, I wouldn't be surprised, Todd, if if you know three or four years from now, session IPAs, which are you know one of the fastest growing aspects of, of craft beer, all they really are is a move back to what domestic loggers gave us so there's not a whole lot of newness under the sun there's just these large you know trends that consumers get on on one side or or the other until the teeter-totter is too full on one side and then they start to walk to the other end is is how i view it interesting any of you uh, the others on the panel have a different view 
Well, Todd, it's interesting. I do a, uh, I've been doing a um, speech um, the last five years with our uh, local rabbi here, uh, Rabbi Glickman, called Jews and Booze. And we do this little speech in front of audiences, and it's really about the history of how Jews were relegated by the Tsar and the Kaiser to just deal with the spirit side because that was kind of considered the dirty side, and the Gentiles got all the licenses for the beer, especially in Germany and, and Russia. And it is fascinating in the five years that I've been doing this uh, speech with the, with the rabbi, uh, they're usually to younger audiences, and this, the questions about beer have virtually disappeared. So it, it just is so fascinating to watch because I, of course, you and I grew up in an era that's all we drank in college. And now it's almost like foreign to them, whether it started with it, that it was they wanted a gluten-free product or women didn't want all the calories and then men kind of copied that. But it, it is absolutely fascinating to see. I fought for three years against the city of Kansas City, Missouri, because they were not going to allow us to serve any product other than what we make. And I thought, my God, I have to be able to serve beer because people are going to want to have a beer. We ended up getting that after three years of, of legalities. I sell probably about $300 um, um, a week in beer. It's just nothing. It's a rounding error. It was a complete waste of time. Interesting. Let me ask you this just as a consumer, right, for all the rest of you. There are all these things that sort of kind of pops up, whether it's Drizzly or or WTSO or direct from the, the from the, the 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 winery, and this maybe is directed at Carol or it's really to for any of you. You know, kind of from the consumer standpoint, like where's where's the best place to shop and to get kind of like the the, the best kind of price value on you know the wines or spirits or what are among the what are among the best places as a consumer? Direct from the maker. Um, you know, you, you are getting a, a guaranteed, um, absolutely uh, high, highest integrity product, um, alcohol shipping by rail and truck across the desert, etc. Um, can be tough on its way to the store. Uh, restaurant storage um, can sometimes be tough. Um, but, um, there, you know, any, any sale of uh, any one of our products is, is a terrific sale. Um, but, but that direct relationship... Um, is a great place to start. And, and of course, when you're out dining um, and out shopping uh, away from home um, uh, from your local purveyors, um, that's awesome. There are an endless number of great purveyors, but uh, that, that direct purchase is uh, uh, can't be beat. Perfect. Lightning round, cannabis. Mm. How's it going to impact the industry? Uh, it just this is David. Um, I I worried about that a lot. I, I spend no time now worrying about it. I have determined that uh, cannabis is a uh, isolating uh, drug, and um, alcohol is very very social. And in fact, at, at what it may end up looking like is um, a marriage, because you're seeing like we're asked a lot at at our at the tasting room. Do you do um, cannabis or something in the in the cocktails? We do not. But uh, I don't think it's going to have an effect on, on, on our, on alcohol at all. Could be wrong. No, I, they, uh, this is Mike. I, I, I agree with that. I think that it's going to be, they're going to be kind of complementary in some odd way industries or else we would have seen more immediate negative impact on markets that have legalized in cannabis. And even where people are trying to get, you know, CBD infused, drinks into either, um, you know, regular kind of retail or on-premise. It hasn't seemed to have 
tremendous amount of impact. And also, like David said, it seems to be something that, you know, more isolating, less less communal, less social, and doesn't, it, it may provide a, um, you know, some sort of physiological or emotional benefit similar to alcohol. But I think the, the overall ritual and experience of of uh, wine, spirits, and even beer is quite different than, you know, popping open a, a can of a, a THC, you know, infused drink or, or, you know, popping a gummy or something like that. I think it's a very different world, very different experience. As far as the actual numbers, um, it, it, uh, underneath a certain price point, it seems that they are, they are not substitutes for each other at all. Um, you know, the, the, the spend on both rays, if you're looking at, at Colorado and California's markets for, for a short amount of time, it did seem at, at the higher end. So if we're talking pricier spirits, pricier wine, pricier beer, um, they seemed to be a, a, a little bit interactive from, from a standpoint of, you know, if spending went up in, in cannabis, it went down in alcohol, but that, that relationship has stabilized over time. Um, to the point where I, I generally agree with what, what all those folks just said. The only thing I'd add is from a business model standpoint, the overall prize is large enough that big alcohol as a, as a, a supplier contingent is very much going after it. Um, and, and you can see it through Constellation's investment in Canopy. And it, it tends to, to look like the way it's going to shake out. It's going to take a long time because there's so little infrastructure available in the U.S. before you know the end of federal prohibition. But the cannabis beverage and, and what I call like the Alcbev operating system of you know one glass of wine does this to me, one beer does this to me, one shot does this to me, seems to be the way that consumers are trained. So I, I think when we look back five or ten years from now, cannabis beverage and other edibles are going to be a much larger part of the market than they are now. Um, and they, and, and that will be because of, of the way that, that people are trained to consume those from, from an alcohol standpoint. So I, I, I do think that you're going to see a lot of investment from the major alcohol suppliers in, into this space over the next 10 years. You know, and, and part of what Todd on your original question about uh, that Carol answered so well about um, where the consumers are going to get that, that, get the product, it kind of goes back to uh, what Carlton just said. It's about um, consumer training. I will tell you now that I live in flyover country and in the middle of of America, um, some of these kind of the digitization of alcohol delivery like Drizzly has had zero effect here. And um, I I was hyped into it. We have to get on board and eventually we will. But I will tell you, outside of, of New York, Chicago, and San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, it, is, it is not a part of the dialogue here. I'm well aware of the dollars that are going into it, but I'm very interested to see if the consumer is trained to order that. Remember, from where I stand in, in you know, a second-tier market, you go to the grocery store every day, and you have a huge car that takes you to that grocery store, and the grocery stores in the Midwest, um, have huge liquor departments. So it's, it's going to be really interesting to see what delivery mechanisms actually do to change consumers' behavior in this area. Maybe, Larry, you can host a, another one of these in a year that talks exclusively about that. Okay. All right. Well, this is the part of the show where we end on a note of optimism. So uh, historically with COVID, uh, we've had a lot of bad news, but now that everyone seems to be getting vaccinated, 
everyone's getting to be very positive, and so optimism can hopefully be no problem. So uh, let's go around the room. Let's start with Mike Novi. Mike, what are you optimistic about? Okay, I'm going to give you two things, Larry. One actually popped up when Tom was talking earlier today. I'll start with that one. I think he's right. Like he, he mentioned how cities are rebounding. I see in the past two months I've been in Chicago, New York, Miami, Los Angeles, Guadalajara, Mexico, and in all instances I, cities, I see cities that are coming back. They're coming back differently and better and more vibrant and more in many ways intimate, and I think that's actually going to continue. And then secondly, um, and what I was going to say to begin with, is that I'm also – optimistic. I'm, I'm now working, you know, I'm working at a tequila company where it's a very diverse group of people. We range in age from 24 to 70, white, black, brown, straight, gay, Republican, and Democrat. And despite, you know, everything we've all lived through in terms of what felt like bifurcation, polarization of points of view and conflict, I'm really optimistic about our ability as a human race to transcend all of that and overcome our differences and find really wonderful ways to, to coexist. That's fantastic. Larry, this is V. I'm here. Okay. <laughs> you want to go next, V? What are you optimistic about? Okay. So I'm optimistic maybe because I'm naive. Maybe I'm hopeful and it's wishful thinking, but I really hope that what we started will lead to making higher education, BA, MA, a more affordable and more accessible to both kind of population, one in the normal age, you know, even those 18-year-olds, and for all other ages that usually don't participate. Once you missed it, you missed it. So it would be much more accessible, and universities will achieve their mission, which they currently they only achieve it in part. That's great. Tom Dijer, what are you excited about? Uh, getting old. Um, I'm very <laughs> excited to. <laughs> I'm very excited to see. Sure beats um, dying, doesn't it? Exactly, but you know, new generations and younger people really um, stepping up and getting angry and and getting interested and getting involved. And I think, like Mike said, I mean, I think that they're very much a part of um, creating new cities and getting past a model that we've had for the last 40 years that I think is ultimately unsustainable. We all were wondering, gee, how long can we keep going? How how high can we keep going in all these different ways? And this thing happened and it was horrible and it cost lives and it popped things. And I think we have a way to, to really start forward and, and really look towards younger generations for new ideas. So that's what I'm happy about and excited about. Good. Carol Reber, what are you optimistic about? Uh, I think uh, the second half of this year and beyond is sure to be a torrent of delayed celebrations realized as people gather for weddings, anniversary, anniversaries, milestone birthdays, um, dining out and res resuming traveling, at least domestically. Um, I, I think the, uh, the work from home, consumption from home, work-life balance is going to be better for people. Um, people are ready to connect and resume living the good life with fine wine, friends, and loved ones. Great. Carlton Fowler. Um, I am really excited that we seem to be 
at the at the precipice of of a very very old um, business model. You know, you know, arguably the second oldest um, type of business model in, in in history. Start to open up um, and modernize. And the the reason I'm I'm so hopeful for that is, you know, when 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 you have when you have something that that doesn't modernize, doesn't embrace new technologies, it tends to overly favor the incumbents. Um, and I am much much more a rooter for David than I am Goliath. So as, as, as more of these changes come into place, you can have a lot more winners of just the best idea, um, and nothing excites me more than that. Great. David Epstein. Well, I think Carol said it, it perfectly. I think uh, the, I'm so optimistic that uh, celebration is back and revelry is back, but I also think exploration. Um, I'm optimistic now that people will explore other ways that, that includes, of course, uh, different spirits, uh, maybe different venues. Um, I think that's going to become uh, very important. And for years, uh, everybody said um, shop local. And I think that just became words. But I think now there may be a different look now that they are, have spent the last year, you know, basically in their homes. Now it's a part of being a part of that community and maybe part of that, I'm thinking optimistically, will be shopping local in a very real way, not just verbiage. Okay. Uh, that ends today's session, but I want to take a minute to plug next week's show. Sunday, May 9th, John Muir, a professor of political science at Ohio State, would join us. He has recently written a very controversial book entitled The Stupidity of War, American foreign policy in the case for complacency. John will argue that America should be extremely reticent to use military force and that our foreign adventures over the last 50 years have been counterproductive. I think the biggest issue facing our economy today is the risk of rising inflation. We will hear from Nomura's chief economist, Louis Alexander, about his short-term inflation forecasts, as well as his predictions for rising long-term inflationary expectations. Kay Heimowitz from the Manhattan Institute will discuss her new book, The New Brooklyn, What It Takes to Bring a City Back. I want to continue the conversation that we started today with Tom Dijah about the future of New York City and hear from Kay Heimowitz about what is happening in Brooklyn, where it's been, and where it's headed. Jonathan Levy will join us for his new book to be released on May 11th, entitled You're Invited, The Art and Science of Cultivating Influence. Jonathan will discuss his strategies to make meaningful connections with important people. Jonathan hosts hundreds of dinner parties with a goal of building lasting relationships, and he will expo explain how you can do it as well. Our final speaker next week will be the Boston University sociologist, Ashley Mears, who is a former fashion model. She has gone undercover with her Louis Vuitton handbag and her little black dress to find out what is going on in the world's hottest clubs and why rich men spend so much money on bottle service. Ashley will discuss her new book entitled Very Important People, Status and Beauty in the Global Party Circuit. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thanks so much. You can disconnect at this time. Bye-bye.